0: Why you even want to do this? What is you thinking, Duke? You think if you start carrying, ain't nobody going to try you? Nah. Somebody's always going to try you. And if they know that you carry they're going to make you come out with it. And once you come out with it, you got to be ready to go all the way. (sharp) Can't bring it out unless you're willing to use it. (sharp) Can't be no doubt. (sharp) Man, can't shoot.
1: Can't fight. Can't even stand on the damn corner.
2: got other skills, man. Smart like that.
0: When you walk through the corner, on my trouble, What's up, y'all? Yes, sir. It's your host with the most, Method Man. And this is The Wire at 20 from HBO and Campside Media. Can you believe it? No, 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 for real. Can you believe we've made it to the second to last episode of this podcast series? Yeah. Now, we talked about how The Wire was basically canceled after season three. But today, we're going to get into how it changed during season three and how that impacted the show moving forward. And then we'll get into season four. People talked about how different the second season was. But the third? (laughs) Man, it really wiped the slate clean. The destruction of Franklin Terrace in the first episode set the tone for the whole season. It lets you know early on, dramatic changes are coming. The most dramatic involved the fall of the Barksdale organization. It's best symbolized by a growing rift between its leaders, Avon Barksdale and Russell Stringer-Bell. Stringer and Avon were like brothers, B. But the streets can turn blood or near blood relationships into blood spilled real quick. To discuss Stringer and Avon's fallout, here's the man himself, Idris Elba. My name's Idris Elba. I played
3: Stringer Bell. I was in three seasons. Initially it was just a you know, just a, a small part. It wasn't significant in the sense that um he was obviously the number two. So for me it was exciting. To watch the evolution from a dramatic perspective, I think the audience was like sitting on the edge of their seat because here here were essentially two brothers that they loved watching become this empire suddenly becoming very quick enemies. That's always compelling to watch. It goes back to some of the oldest stories that we've ever been told, Cain and Abel, you know, some of these big stories that look at the separation of friends.
1: You know what the difference is between me and you?
0: I bleed red. You bleed green. What you been building for us, huh? You know what, I look at you these days, you know what I see?
1: I see a man without a country. Not hard enough for this right here. And maybe, just maybe, not smart enough for them out there. Not hard enough.
3: No offense, I don't think you ever really were. Personally, I felt that it was inevitable that they were going to fall out. They were going to disrupt. They wanted different things or approach things differently. And I feel dramatically it made sense for the writers to try and pull these two apart because that's the last thing anyone thought was going to happen. Even though I knew it was inevitable that it was going to happen, I was saddened by the way it happened, I guess. Saddened that there wasn't another way for these characters to to evolve. What Stringer was saying made a lot of sense. What Avon was saying had a lot of heart. And on hindsight, of course, they were going to fall out, but one would want to
0: see them go, you know what, let's figure this out. Before The Wire, Idris was a largely unknown actor. The show changed that. I mean, this dude is huge now. His name even comes up in conversations about playing James Bond. Can you believe that? I can.
3: The wire came at make or break as an actor in the states. You know, I had moved out there sort of five five years prior to getting it, and if I didn't get that job, it was just very specific to that job because my wife at the time was pregnant with my daughter. She was due in January, and I was auditioning all through November and December. And if I didn't get the job, I would have to pack up sticks. Get back to the UK where there's a little more of a support system and maybe more work. So this this show really changed my life. Like it changed the trajectory of my life, like beyond anyone's comprehension. I've never seen the wire, you know. I I found it difficult to watch myself. And a lot of people always be like, You haven't seen the wire. And I'm like, I just I don't like to watch myself. If I can avoid it, I try not to watch it. So there are films that I've been in that I haven't seen. There was TV shows that I've been in that I haven't seen. And The Wire is, is one of those. I think some actors find it a little bit hard to sort of watch themselves and then continue working because you start to overly criticize yourself or analyze yourself in a way that's not natural. Me, Wood Harris and Andre Royo, Hassan Johnson, you know, we was a tight little unit. We, we all sharpened each other as, as the season went on it was a very unique group because we were all robust agile actors but at the same time we all actually brought a little bit of ourselves into these characters definitely without a doubt so you can't you know whenever I see a clip of the wire or whatever especially with Hassan because I used to kick it with Hassan the most they like, just just watching him work, it just take me back to when we was just running around all the time. And he was literally that character,
0: you know. <laughs> he was literally that guy, yeah. The Wire doesn't have the most optimistic outlook. But it takes aim at crumbling systems rather than the people who are being failed by those systems. That just made it honest. Brutally honest at times. But honest nonetheless. I think the show
3: is realistic. I found it raw being a part of that community while filming a show about that community. There was a lot of symmetry there that was uncomfortable. There was plenty scenes where we'd be shooting and either the real 12 o'clock boys would come through with their motorbikes and just roll through or some beef will spill out and the producers were like, yo, we need to get off the streets big shootout what happened real quick and then come back and all of that was just part of the sort of film experience let alone the life experience of the people that lived in those communities but i felt that people in those communities were optimistic weirdly enough this is their everyday existence right there's this underlying optimism that things are going to get better people go hustle make money and it's optimistic it's not like oh worries us I remember going to Baltimore first and saying, well, this reminds me of Manchester. Manchester in the UK, very similar. A community there in Moss Side where, you know, the police couldn't even go in, you know, and that community sort of survived on its own rules. And there were gods and heroes in those places and there were demons and devils in those places, you know. I'm not sure The Wire was like a prophet in that sense. It highlighted an underbelly of America, which for a long time had an outward facing of the American dream is amazing. And, you know, you can come here and do what you want. And people in Manchester, they were like, damn, that sounds amazing. I want to go to America. But I dined on that dream too, you know, living in London, East London, thinking about, wow what I could achieve in America as an actor. But Baltimore offered a different outward facing reality. And yeah, it was a wake up, it was 100% a wake up.
0: At the same time, The Wire did a great job of balancing its heavier topics with humor. <laughs> Shit, you could even argue that its cynicism fueled the humor. The show has so many funny moments. Omar terrorizing drug dealers led to a lot of humor. Come on now by the hands of your chinny chin chin. So did Bunk and McNulty, when they were fucking hammered. <laughs> All right. Mm. What are you doing, Where are your fucking clothes? Even Lieutenant Daniels, who always looked dead serious about everything, and I do mean everything, had his moments. This is bullshit. And who could forget when Bodie and Poot ran into Herc and Carver at the movies. Y'all go to the movies? And you must be the lovely Mrs. Hurt. <laughs> and how could we forget about Cheese, who basically carried this whole show with his comedic timing? I right, cottage cheese, chest-ass, right. Bodied that shit. Even Stringer had his share of moments, which have turned into memes. One is his infamous 40-degree day rant. Nobody give a fuck about... 40. Nobody remember 40, and y'all niggas is giving me way too many 40 degree days. What the fuck? The other involves documenting illegal activity.
3: Nigga, is you taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy?
0: From the inside out, the scenes weren't
3: always designed to be funny. They were designed to be real and we didn't play them for the laughs. And that's something that people have always said to me, yo, you watch the wire, you be cracking up. I mean, like, what what are you laughing at, though? The 40 degree day speech, or whatever people talk about that. But like, that's funny. Or you know, some of the scenes in the funeral, or some of the D scenes with with the boys. They're funny, and I I was like, well, they weren't written to be funny. I think the performances are so rich and 360 that you that that it comes across as like funny, but I don't think it was designed to be that way. I think the balance, though is healthy for a show like that in terms of the sort of drama humor ratio the ratio is healthy And never forget like the, the funeral scenes were shot in a real location it wasn't a funeral home but it was a real location in baltimore and it, it was kind of musty and damp and it was like someone's front room or something you know what i mean so we'd shoot them scenes and then be out like We'd shoot that angle, and then everyone would be out on, on the street, and we are just sitting in the street. Nobody wanted to sit on the location. It wasn't like a place where we was just cotching and having mad fun. It's like, we'd just do the scene and get out, get some fresh air, because that place is musty, and then get back in again.
0: You know what else is funny? Idris remembers meeting a Wire fan years ago who just knew in his heart that the show was going to be huge someday. That fan was Kanye West.
3: I was watching that Kanye uh, documentary recently. And there was this one moment, which is right when he put out Through the Wire, and he's in Jersey. I DJed at a, a party with Talib Kweli, and Kanye was there. It was Talib's birthday. Last son was there, and Kanye was obsessed with The Wire, and he was like, yo, I want to hang with you guys. I'm putting out a mixtape for this album, and uh, I just need, uh, yo, The Wire, uh, come up to the crib. So I'm watching Jesus, and he's in that crib upstairs, he's got he's got that scooter in in his house, and I remember thinking, yo, <laughs> me and Hassan rolled up to his house one afternoon, and we were freestyling and bullshitting all afternoon in that very same apartment. And man, I got hairs on the back of my neck watching that. I was like, yo, and like not many people would know that because we was like, you know, not that well known at the time. But you know, Kanye knew, and he was like, you guys are gonna be the next thing. You crazy?
1: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot All
0: right. Now for the second part of this episode, we're going to cast a spotlight on one season in particular. We asked a lot of people we interviewed which season of The Wire they thought was the best season. Far and away, we heard one answer again and again. I think season four was the best season. Oh, hands down, four.
2: My favorite season was season four.
0: I think it's the best year of The Wire. Season four. So we wanted to take some time to unpack what makes this season so special. One huge reason, the kids. Jermaine Crawford played Duquan Dookie Wings, one of the kids who became the Wyatt's focus during season four. Jermaine originally auditioned for the role of Michael Lee, which was played by Staten Island's own Tristan Wiles. What up, Mac? But Jermaine ended up getting the role of Dookie. You know, that worked out perfectly. Because there's a distinct sensitivity that he brought to the role, even at a young age.
1: I was not old enough to watch the show at the time, but I was doing a lot of acting locally in Maryland, like community theater. And I was acting professionally, and then this opportunity for the show came along. I had never heard of it, but coincidentally enough, it was my brother's favorite TV show. So, you know, we all live in the same household, and I'm just like, yeah, whatever, another audition for another show— Cold case, no, this one, no. I was like, yes, this thing called The Wire. He's like, you have to get this role. <laughs> He's like, I know you don't know what this means, but you have to be in this TV show. I was like, okay, heard you, heard you. So <laughs> I just, you know, I, I,
0: I did it for my brother. Casting kids isn't easy. And this was even harder because they're so important to the season. Here's what casting director Alexa Fogel remembers about what it took to get that right. Casting the kids, casting kids is always a challenge because part of what you're doing when you're working with them is
3: tricking them into a performance that may naturally be there, but you can't use grown-up terms about acting to give direction. You have to find a a different way to do it. We didn't have an enormous amount of time, which is usually the, the enemy of casting kids. You really need time to look all over, and we did, but we did it in a mad crunch. We ended up with two kids from New York, one from Chicago and one from Baltimore. Jermaine, that's our baby boy. And he was the youngest of the four, too.
1: I still remember the auditioning process, and it was very, very, very extensive. It was probably, even at this point in my career, the most extensive auditioning process I ever went through was about six months. I started off auditioning for Michael, went in for Michael, got a call back from Michael. They gave me donuts, Went in for Donut, then they were like, okay, maybe it's Randy, okay. And then the very last audition, which was my screen test, they were like, okay, we want you to try Dookie. I'm like, Dookie? It was a very magical auditioning process with Mr. Chu, who plays Proposition Joe, rest in peace. He coached me. Through that screen test and he's a huge factor as to why I believe I got the role because of course I went in and I did my take of what I thought the material was. And then he was like, hey, can I talk to him one second outside the room? Then he pulled me to the side and he just really broke it down to me. He was like, dude, this role is yours. You need to go in there and kill it. It was that motivation that led me to kill that screen test. And about a week later, I got the call that it was official. HBO is like premium cable, and stepping into that network and that family, you know you're a part of something. I was still young, and I grew up in theater, so I knew you just commit. Commit as much as possible. Wear it, feel it, be it, be in it, just stay there. So I tried to just do as much research as I could on um, youth who were homeless, and then, of course, Ed Burns, one of the writers, he expressed to me that a lot of the kids that were in the classroom acting with us, they were real-life dookies, and they were undergoing the circumstance that I was able to tap in and out of once they said action and cut. So even that reality kind of sunk into what I offered to the performance and just try to make it as grounded and realistic as possible.
0: Jermaine and the other kids had to deal with the challenge of entering an environment where people already had formed deep relationships. Trying to penetrate that can be intimidating especially if you're a young actor. The
1: show was already in existence for three years before we got on. They took a year off air after the devastating ending of season three. They already had a really tight-knit family structure. When we got there, I ain't gonna say no names. But there was a couple of wise cracks on the young boys, you know what I'm saying? There was a couple of jokes like who these young boys think they are coming in on our show, thinking they the leads, thinking they the principal actors, you know what I'm saying? So we had a we had a lot of that. But it was it was even familial then. It was like when you pull up to the cookout and your uncle who you haven't seen in a long time is giving you a hard time, but it's rooted in love. It's centered in love.
2: Let's be clear, the fourth season, we all were like, are we turning this shit into a fat album? What are all these kids doing here? <laughs> what the fuck are we doing? Why are the kids now the star of the show?
1: <laughs> Andre Royo is one of the uncles I was talking about. I wasn't going to say no names, but Andre Royo was one of the uncles who was like, who y'all think y'all is on that set? Like, he was the uncle for sure. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> I love Andre, man. Andre's so cool. When we first got there, You already know that once production starts, you're going to have the opening party at Donna's house. There's going to be the wrap party and then the after party at Donna's house. And then there's going to be the mid party at Donna's house. Donna's the costume designer. There were so many events outside of filming where people would link up and hang. And now that I'm an actor in older age, I recognize that that's not how it always goes. Everybody don't just kick it like that outside the workspace. Four kids. 13, 14, 15, and 16, just like that, bop, 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 bop. The the most odd of ages that you could be as a young man, coming into your own. So we had so much fun on set. We had so much fun on set. We would play basketball. This was when music was still pure. So we were bumping, you know, banging, grinding on the table by clips and rapping. Oh, I think they like me by them franchise boys. And we all would do a verse. You know what I'm saying? We would watch Family Guy. We would know every word to Family Guy. we know a song. We all had a verse to the song. There'd be the Scream Tour. Everybody goes to the Scream Tour. We just made it a lot of fun. Maestro was a child star, so he knows how set goes. Julito had worked with Spike Lee. He knew how set goes. So they already knew the culture of creating a fun environment on set. So we just kind of, I guess Tristan and I, we kind of followed their lead and just having a good time. We didn't get invited to the Nickelodeon Awards because that was a little grown for the kids, but I was 12 turning 13 when I started The Wire. So sometimes in Hollywood, 12 can be eight, 12 can be nine. So I looked really, really young. But by the time I came back at 14, 14 is closer to 16. So, you know, I was just shooting up and just freaking skyrocketing and just stalking all over everybody. And then I had the fucking afro that was like four inches taller. So, you know,
0: that puberty thing kicked in. The four main kids, Jermaine, Tristan, Maestro Harrell, who played Randy Wagstaff, and Julito McCullum, who played Naaman Bryce, they all formed a bond. But Jermaine and Tristan, they had something unique. It helped make Dookie and Michael's friendship feel even more genuine on screen.
1: I'll keep it real. I'll keep it real. I'll tell you the scoop, right? I remember at the screen test, I was sitting there with my mom. Maestro wasn't here for the screen test. I think he got cast away because he was in Chicago. But they brought all the options from New York to the production office in Baltimore to do this screen test. And I remember Julito, Tristan, maybe some other people came in. And Tristan came over to me. He was just like, Oh, I'm Tristan. Nice to meet you. And I was like, okay. And I just never forgot that. You know what I'm saying? And so when we started working together, I always just felt closer to Tristan. And I don't know if it was intentional. I haven't asked David. But the way it was, was me and Tristan were super close. Julio and Maestro were super close. And we'd all just kind of meet somewhere in the middle, right? Now, I don't know if that was an observation made by David and Ed. Like, okay, we see the dynamics. Let's really run with it. Or did they already know that it was going to go that way? And art imitates life. Like, I I don't know. It was just, you know? (laughs) But, you know, me and Tristan, we really kicked it tight. We found out filming the fifth season that we were kind of like second-removed cousins because one of his cousins married my cousin, and this is a true story. So we're like, wow, you live in Staten Island, I live in Maryland, and we're second cousins, and we met on an HBO TV show. Like, life is interesting.
0: We heard there was a little tension between Jermaine and Olito back then, which seems fitting, considering how antagonistic Dookie and Naaman's relationship was. Yo, you were seriously backwards, dude. You know that, right? Playing with bugs like he's stealing pamphlets. No, <laughs>
1: okay. no, you don't want any pamphlets.
0: Put them over that mouth you got. Catch all that shit you be flushing. Ew. We asked Jermaine to clear that up for us. <laughs> it's
1: not that we didn't get along, but I do think we were wearing our characters. And at that young age, sometimes you can't separate. Because when you're young and you're acting, the only—what child actors do is commit, overly commit, so that you can be as pure as possible. So I think just the nature of the character that he played and the nature of the character that I played, naturally there was going to be some resistance. Even as men, Julito and I have talked about it, and we laugh about it really hard, but I think it was meant to be. It drove me to give the best performance I've ever given. It drove him to give the best performance, you know, that he's given thus far for both of us. So there was slight tensions on the set. No one ever came to blows, ever. And it never really turned into no type of argument. But there, you know, if I'm 13 and he's 15, our minds, (laughs) we talk about different shit. (laughs) We talk about different shit. So, um... Yeah. Naturally, there was a little bit of resistance between Julito and I, but throughout time, we love each other like family now. Sonia really took us in, almost like the mom on set, like the auntie mom. You know what I'm saying? She, she took us in, so I was most comfortable with her in that way because there was that nurturing kind of vibe that Sonia gives you. You know, she gives you that warm feeling inside. It was either that or Jim True Frost, me and Jim True Frost, we did a lot of scenes together, and we kicked it, and Jim Truefrost is a cool dude. Jim Truefrost plays Prez Beluski, by the way. He's just one of the coolest people, most open-minded people, and he's a lot of fun to work with on sets.
2: I can't get my head around that the kids who played the students in my classroom are now pushing 30 years old. It kind of doesn't make sense. <laughs> For the rest of us, you know, you're 30, you're 40, you're 50. It all feels like a moment, but... Those people have grown up. Wow.
1: I still haven't seen him since we wrapped. Hopefully I get to see him soon. I would I would love to see Jim True Frost. That would make Dookie's heart melt. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Watching those young actors grow into their roles and grow as actors as the season went on was just so cool. And it wasn't a bit of a surprise to me. I could tell from the very beginning that they were really taking their work seriously. I mean, some of them had had some significant experience before, some had very little, and then there was a whole slew of kids just playing the sort of background or one-line parts in the class, and all of them were dead serious about the work, too. There was just a real sense of, like, we're going to tell this story, and we're not going to waste our time or waste this opportunity.
0: You know that saying, those who can't do, teach? I don't think that's true for all teachers, but it definitely was for Prez, played by the great Jim True Frost. Look, Prez had no business being on the street as a cop, but he started to find himself as a teacher during season four. Here are Jim and Ed Burns, who based some of season four on his experiences teaching at Baltimore's Hamilton Middle School.
2: Prez is a great character. It was a lot of fun to play because he was a fuck-up. He was someone stressed to the hill he couldn't handle the job he didn't perform well on the street and he acted badly made bad choices there was never any clear like success moment no clear I've made it moment Prez always had (laughs) he came up and then he came down and even things that appeared like a bit of action or satisfaction like when he punches his father-in-law you know it's miserable He's, he's not like, yeah, that felt good. It's like he, he's caught in such a terrible bind right there. There's always trouble around the corner for Prez. My main preparation for the role of Prez was living with my wife for two years. <laughs> and what I mean is she had been a school teacher in Baltimore with Teach for America in, you know, one of the two really tough, under-resourced schools in Baltimore that were the source for Ed Burns' material as he wrote season four about one of those schools. The other school was the school that he taught at.
4: You sort of have this idea when you see a school, especially when you look at it from the outside, you have an idea that there's learning going on inside. Because you were in school and learning was going on. <laughs> right? Well, when I went to Hamilton Middle School, the only thing that wasn't going on in that school was learning and that's a fact
2: my wife taught at booker t washington middle school in 94 Two school years two whole school years and she'd say things that i'd hear 10 12 years later right out of ed burns mouth like she had a co-teacher who said you know i fought in vietnam this is much much more challenging The grief, you know? I remember nights when she cried herself to sleep, and this would be a year or two after she had taught in Baltimore, just kind of going over in her head. I mean, I would read those scripts and say, oh, yeah, I've already heard this story. I heard this story from my wife.
4: I think the second day the school was in session, the principal, Miss Holly, who was great, came into my room, and, and I said to her, you know, you, you ought to go out there and shake the bushes in front of the school. We had these big... Um, Bushes in front of the school. Because I said I was watching, they're dropping guns and things like that in those bushes. I mean, you should just do it. So she had the janitors go out and shake the bushes, and sure enough, they came up with a whole bunch of knives, you know. You know, so that that was the school.
2: I would talk to Ed Burns about almost every scene that I had to do as a teacher because I knew that there would be something either literal or something beneath the surface. That came straight from his experience. It always paid off. I'd be sitting around with Ed, just let loose, and say, you know, one time I, I knew that I wasn't getting anywhere in the classroom, and it was all about classroom management, and there was no point in trying to teach. I needed to get some order and some respect. So I spent a whole day having them rearrange the desks in the classroom. Or the thing about uh, y- using dice, playing dice to help learn math to violence in the classroom, to taking care of students and providing whatever they need that they're not getting at home as much as you can. Stories like that from Ed kind of gave me the raw material. It was never, like, notes about acting or even understanding the story better. It was always more just, like, what's going on underneath and what's your experience, Ed? Throw me a bomb. (laughs) And, oh man, he had so much to share.
4: Every kid in my class the first year had failed at least once, if not twice. I had one kid who was like six foot six. This is seventh grade. So that's where the idea of separating the kids that we we did in the fourth season, that's what I dreamed up as a way of separating the corner kids from the stoop kids. And uh, it really worked for the stoop kids. In two years, we got an enormous amount of kids into special programs in the high schools around the city.
2: There's one scene where Freeman and Bonk come to see me in the classroom, and the world's turned upside down for me. Those guys represent something I really respect and loved, but also all the grief and terrible memories of shooting somebody and having to leave the... Force And all these new feelings of protectiveness and dedication to the kids that I'm teaching and having to kind of stand up for them and say, hey, these are my kids. Don't mess with my kids. You know, that was something that, you know, just couldn't even be imagined about Prez in season three or season two or season one. So those scenes were really, really satisfying.
0: Remember the episode where this girl, Shaquan, keeps messing with this other girl named Letitia? And then Letitia slices her face open with a razor? We call that a buck fifty where I'm from. Go ahead. And then remember how Dookie blows that mini fan in Letitia's face after the whole skirmish goes down? That scene shows his empathy. Jermaine says he didn't really understand the scene until he got much older. I talked to
1: the girl Charmaine not too long ago who was the girl that cut the girl in the face. Now I understand I didn't get it at first and I don't think Anyone in the classroom got it at first when we were filming. Like, so much so that, like, Anthony Hemingway, who was the assistant director at that time, now he's, of course, this masterful director on his own, right? But he would come over and be like, guys, I need y'all to stop laughing. <laughs> Cause, like, she would cut her in the face and we sit down and then I put the fan in her face and everybody's like, <laughs> and starts kind of snickering. Like, I didn't understand it either. But I knew that it was my job to make it believable. And now, I see it exactly for what it was, and its it was kind of like a a love offering from one outcast to another. You know, she's being teased for God knows what, you have this, you know, pretty light-skinned girl, you know, yada, 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 saying all this stuff about this girl, and just she's constantly going at her, 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 and she couldn't take anymore, and she just snapped. And I understood that. I think the character understood that because although Dookie never had that moment of snapping, well, kind of when he punched little Taliso in the face on the corner, like, you know, that was a little something for Dookie. But, you know, it was just a moment of I understand, I see you, I see you. I think that was a moment of just two souls, two outcast
0: souls seeing each other. Jermaine was young when he was in The Wire. He wasn't quite old enough to be watching that shit. I mean, that's heavy for someone at the start of their teens. Actually, Jermaine told us that it took him several years to really watch the show in its entirety. And once he did, he was floored. When I was about 21, I said, you know what? On
1: my 21st year, I needed to see what everyone is talking about. I was 21 years old. I wrapped the show when I was 15, 16, and I waited a while. Because it was just like, I didn't, I wasn't able to see it for what it was because I was so much a part of it. The Wire hits different as an adult. The wire hits, co- <laughs> oh, my God, it's so devastating. It's like the kids were completely innocent, and I don't think I grasped what that really meant until maybe a decade after we wrapped. I was I was just acting. I was doing my best. I didn't really grasp the fact that there was, like, a the innocence being taken from the children in the show until way after. I'm going to say it's the children... I have to be honest with you, it's the children. Children are the most relatable thing in the world. They're the purest source of inspiration, the purest source of just light and everything. And when you have this wonderfully composed expose from government to policing, and now we throw the education system in, it played on the heartstrings of the world like nothing has ever played on it before. And I think it was so nostalgic. It took us back to summertime for all of us. Water balloons for all of us. The ice cream truck for all of us. It it made something very adult easier to digest. The most heartbreaking is what happened to Randy. It's just like, gosh, if this were real life, like, oh my gosh. Like, you know what I'm saying? I, I see this now. I see this now. You hear the stories. This is real. They think. They're doing the right thing, and there's supposed to be a system that helps you do the right thing. (laughs) You think you're doing the right thing, and it just doesn't go. Maestro Harrell did an amazing job in that last scene when, you know, he he was looking at Carver, and Carver was walking down, and just the tears were streaming down his face. It was so, so, such amazing work. That That was the most heartbreaking moment of season four to me, personally.
0: You gonna help, huh? You gonna look out for me? You gonna look out for me, Sergeant Carver? You mean it?
4: You gonna look out for me? You promise?
0: Dookie's end is tragic as well. When Michael's forced to go on the run in season five, Dookie's left without a support system. By the end of the series, he's living on the street and doing heroin. It's a painful example of how kids slip through the cracks
1: the ending for my character was so eye-opening and so shocking. It was definitely devastating, especially as a kid, because as a kid, it's hard to disassociate the role that you're playing from reality. So I'm like, no, I wanted to be the one that, you know, make money and hold a gun. I don't want to be in the alley shooting up dope. So as a kid, I felt bad for the character. We had a close set when I did that scene when I was shooting up heroin. I think in that moment, I kind of knew, like, damn, this is very adult for me to be doing at 15 years old. Like, this is very mature. Hmm, I'm doing a grown-up thing. And as I become older, I just see, like, damn, it's still happening every single day, over and over and over,
0: over and over and over. Just the cycle continues. Prez tries to nurture Dookie in season four, which paints his character in a new light. Who thought they'd see Prez giving guidance?
2: Get here early. I'll let you in, and you can shower.
1: My dirty clothes?
2: Put them in this bag, leave it in the locker.
0: I'll bring them home and wash them. Prez and Dookie have a few last encounters before the series is over. The actors never forgot them. There's certain
1: scenes and days on set I can remember so vividly, and it was the scene when I came back to school to see Presbo, and I think I gave him a gift or something, like a pen or something, like whatever. And I just looked awful. <laughs> like, he's like, What the hell, Dookie? <laughs> I left you alone for four seconds.
2: Like, where'd you go? The, the scene where Dookie comes back to see Prez and, and gives him the pen as a present, Prez is kind of stuck, you know, trying, wanting to help him, but also knowing that he's gone down a really dark path. That sums up so much about Prez's arc as a character. It's like that's the cost, you know. That's the cost he he loves them, and that means really feeling the pain when someone gets lost. Hey, it's a quad. don't you need to be a Douglas? I'm on my way
1: there. Yeah, where's your book bag? Oh, it's um, I'm a Stop past the house and get it. It's a present. for you did It's for your death. I think I kind of got it even at that age. It was just that exchange when I recognized that my character was lying to him to protect the fact that I, you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh damn, like he has nothing. Like, Michael is like, dang, I can't hold you, dude. And then Mr. was like, uh, yeah, I can't. And I'm just like, no, nah, it's cool. I'm fine. I'm good. I think that that's the moment where it clicked for me as the actor playing the character that it's a slippery slope from here.
2: I know audience is connected with it just because it's that sense of, ah, if only. If only things had been a little different. Or a lot different. Randy and Damon and... Dookie, they're all, they're all, yeah, those are some sad-ass stories.
0: Dookie was genuinely a tragic figure, and Jermaine says Dookie stayed with him for years after The Wire was over. It did put me in a really
1: weird place for a while after production. It was almost kind of like a survivor's remorse thing, because it's like, whoa, they say rap and cut, and now it's over for me but it's like there's a lot of kids who are still like dwelling in that every single day, and it's no HBO set for them, you know? It took quite a few years to kind of let go of the character. It took a long time. If I rapped when I was about 15, it's almost embarrassing to say, but I don't think I really came out of it until I was like 20, and 21. It was just a dark time for me. My voice was changing, my body was changing, my look was changing. I was really entering puberty and manhood. Kind of in front of the world. I'm auditioning, I'm working, I'm doing these jobs. And I I think I was still wearing Dookie. You know, I was still wearing Dookie. I was just sad. I was depressed as hell all the time. And I really didn't know why. I couldn't really wrap my mind around, like, why am I so sad all the damn time? Because everyone was associating me with Dookie. I was associating myself with Dookie. It, It really took me a long time to snap out of that. It took me a long time to snap out of that. I believe that. Every role you play is a part of you, for you to really be organic and pure and truthful. So that sadness really wore on me, but so did the enlightenment of what people are really going through. I'm very grateful that the ending happened the way it did so that people can talk about it and that when you see a kid that looks like Dookie, you'll think twice. You'll be nicer, you'll be kinder, you'll help, you'll extend yourself.
0: The Wire explored how systems fail people, Nothing emphasized that better than seeing how the public education system robbed children of their innocence. It was great to hear from Jermaine about this, just like it was great to see him as a grown-ass man on We Own the City, created by David Simon and George Pelicanos, respectfully. He and the other kids contributed to some of the best shit ever seen on television, and I stand on that. Next week on The Wire at 20...
2: David Simon was like, look, I'm not going to dumb down my show, man. I, I remember leaving that office like, this is the most conceited white boy I ever met. I, I went to Ed and said, man, this is this is all wrong. I would never do this. You know, let's see what he said. And, and Ed said,
0: just give it time. The Emmys are political. The Academy is a political
3: body. David Simon just pissed off everybody in Hollywood.
0: We're, we're in a post-truth America. Did... Did Ed or me or George, did any of us know how bad
4: it was going to get? No.
0: Now, if you like what you heard, you know what to do. Subscribe. And don't forget that all seasons of The Wire are on HBO Max. So go watch them, man. The Wire at 20 podcast is a production of HBO and Campside Media. This episode was produced by Cliff Method Man Smith, Sean Agar, and Natalia Winkleman. Julian Kimball is our story editor. Our associate producer is Lily Houston-Smith. Fact-checking by Aliyah Papes. At Campside Media, our executive producer is Josh Dean. Editing and sound design by Rod Sherwood and David Devereaux. Music by the Neville Brothers. Thanks for listening. See you next time.